almost one of my favorite uh, musicians, Ben Webster. Uh, he's no longer with us. He took off for the great blue sky in 1965, uh, where he and he died in uh, Copenhagen, where he went to do a lot of musical things and ended up being uh, buried there. This is uh, Ben Webster on tenor sax, Andre Meyer on trumpet, John Darville on trombone, Earl Cogstead. I have to get my uh, foreign accent in gear, tenor sax, Nils Jorgenstein on piano, Hendrik Hartmann on bass, and Hans. Nymond on Trumps. This was recorded in 1965 and it's called Blue Light. This is Lead Stories. I'm Eugenius Lead and welcome today to the continuing series that we have of fellow uh, instructors or presenters. Uh, we are going to have a major presentation today by one of us, and uh, I think it will be very useful to you because it addresses an issue that is very seldom discussed because it has to do with death and dying. But it is not by any means a downer. It is about arming you with information uh, because you might just be a person who is being looked to right now in your family uh, to help take care of an elder who is slipping away and who has no other people in their lives to help them with the end-of-life tasks and end-of-life living. So we're going to talk about that today. And our guest is, you've heard her before, I'm sure, because she used to call quite regularly, uh, Gwen Goodwin. Hello, Gwen. Are you there? Or oh, she's not there yet here. She's not yet here with us. Okay, Gwen is going to shepherd this particular lecture through, and the reason that this is chosen is that many of us, many of us, are connected somehow to elderly people who are at the end of their lives. I went through it. Um, but although my father died quite suddenly, but my mother uh, took a while before she left, and there were issues. There were many issues that we had to confront. So this is something that this presentation prepares us for. How do you deal with the impending departure of someone who is in your life, who is 
elderly. And what is this issue about, or what are the issues concerning hospice care? What should you know? Okay, is Gwen with us? I'm not getting an indication. I'm getting lots of clicks, but no indication. I'm here. Oh, goody. Hello, Gwen. I'm here. How are you today? Okay, I'm okay. Uh, I couldn't hear the beginning of your show because I was waiting for the call. Okay. Well, in any event, I introduced you as one of the regular listeners of the program, of Lead Stories. That's how our encounter began. You used to call quite, and still do, call frequently. But this turned out to be a very surprising uh, part of the discussion that you and I have had, and I thought it would have been a great thing to just invite you in to share with the rest of us what your experience has been in this issue of hospice care, which we really don't think too much about until it's time. It it crash uh, lands in our lives, and we have to deal with it. So... Welcome, and thank you for being here, and thank you for sharing your experience and your expertise in this area with us today. Okay, everybody. Um, Thank you for allowing me to speak on this, because it's turned out to be a very um, significant issue in my life recently. Um, This is a cautionary tale, and I just want to tell everyone, this is a personal experience that I have had. I'm sure others out here have had different experiences, but I'm sharing this with the audience because I was very naive about how this worked. I knew very little about it and uh, didn't realize how dangerous uh, it it was going to be to the person in my life. So uh, my mother has given me permission to talk about her story and I'm going to briefly tell you what happened. And, um, First, I just want to read to you what what the actual statement is for hospice, Um, because it's important that you hear the statement. Hospice care serves people who have a life-limiting illness and have decided to stop trying to prolong their life. Typically, a person enters hospice when their doctor has given life expectancy prognosis of six months or less. Once they're hospice certified, however, the patient care continues through the end of life and family bereavement and support continues. Hospice for individuals who have decided to stop curative treatments instead of take advantage of comprehensive medical and non-medical service to meet their mental, physical, and spiritual and emotional needs. Pain management and comfort care is also known as palliative care. It is one part of peace, dignity, and yes, even the joy hospice service can help provide at the end of life. So I want to tell you that last, in, in the month of January, Uh, an ambulance went to my mother's house and left and I didn't, I went down to see if she was okay. And I was unaware that my mother had been placed in the hospice. So uh, I called her regular doctor and I took her to the hospital. And uh, I found out during that time that she was in the hospital 
that she had been entered into this program. And when we went to the hospital, I found out what was wrong with my mom was that she had uh, she had a, 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 a compacted bowel issue, and it was very serious. It took about ten hours to uh, fix it, but we got it fixed. She felt fine, and we we're out of there. But later on, I got a telephone call from this company that was doing the hospice. I got it the next day. And they told me that my mother had been entered into hospice. And I said, why is my mother in hospice when she does not have a terminal illness? And they said, well, your mother has AFib. AFib is not a terminal illness, and it doesn't qualify to be in the hospice program. That does not qualify you to be in this program. And so I was very concerned because my mother was not expected to die in six months. And, yes, my mother is very old. She is very old, and so is my father. But, you know, they're in relatively good health for the, the, for the time they're here. My mom is 96. My dad's 99. And so I became uh, more and more concerned having this conversation because when I told the gentleman that my mother did not know she was in hospice, and indeed I didn't either, and uh, my father didn't know, and I said they would not approve of this because my mother is not dying. And I said, uh, and he said, well, it's very hard to take people out of the program once they're in. And I said, well, I'm very sorry, but I said, I think this sounds like malpractice to me. And that is when the conversation stopped. And he said, you know what? We don't really like to have people in the program unless the family's on board. But later on, I got the papers, the paperwork from the hospice. And I was stunned by what they were about to put my mother on. They were about to put my mother on seven different types of medicine for schizophrenia. I'll just read you the first three. There was one called Haldor, which is actually a horse tranquilizer. The next thing was morphine. And the next thing on the menu was something called phenothiazine. All of these would have killed my mother. It, it just one dose. All of them would have killed her because my mother has low blood pressure and she has AFib. And the other thing that people don't understand is the minute you enter into a hospice program, you are taken off of your life-saving medicine, which means that my mother would have first been taken off her medicine to manage her AFib, and then she would have been fed a dose of these medicines. Now, when I contacted the state, the state told me that they, particularly the first one, Haldor, is never given out to senior citizens because that can kill a senior citizen right away. But when I read all of the uh, concoctions they were about to give her, first it broke my heart because I realized how helpless my mother was. My mother was lied to uh, by the person that signed her up into the program. She, they were told uh, by a, a relative of my family not to tell my mom that she was going to enter into hospice. So instead they told her it was health care. So my mom was excited to have more people come to the house, so she went ahead and she signed it. She never knew that she had been entered into the hospice program. So it wasn't until I found out about it and, and, and told her about it. And I remember how upset she was upon hearing this, almost like a, a child that this, well, A, she couldn't believe it, and B, she certainly understood the seriousness of this. And her feelings were hurt because she couldn't understand why anyone would sign her up for something like this, when clearly my mother does not have a life-threatening disease that would kill her in six months. The way hospice works is you can pull, you can draw it out for about two years, and then it's over. I recently met a neighbor and was talking to him about what happened to my mother, and he told me that the exact same thing happened to his grandmother. And he said the thing that upset him the most is that 
the relative that he asked about how his grandmother ended up in this program would not tell her, tell him how he got the prescription. Now, in my mother's case, there was no doctor visit. No doctor came to my mother's house. It was a telephone call. And instead of talking about the fecal impaction my mother was suffering from, the, the, the doctor asked about AFib. And as soon as she found out my mother had AFib, she prescribed hospice. The next leg of the trip was the, the director of the hospice, who never met my mother, never spoke to her, never saw her, he signed off on it. So first, we have a prognosis, which is not, not life-threatening and not even legal to be in the hospice program. And two doctors certified to this, two doctors that had never seen my mother, not touched her, not felt her heartbeat, not put hands on. And so this happened to my mother, and it also happened to my neighbor which got me really alarmed thinking about this because so many things came into my mind about this. How many other people is this happening to? How easy is it to, to just decide that somebody's lived long enough and we're going to pull the plug on them? Now, in the United States of America, every patient is, is guaranteed informed consent. And a normal process for a hospice that is legitimate is about two hours long, the, the, the whole uh, intake takes, because first they go over it with you, and then they go over the whole thing all over again to make sure that this is what you want to do. Because generally speaking, there is no turning back. And even if you decide to change your mind, say my mother changed her mind, my mother would have been so zonked out from these psychotropic drugs that the most she would do is be sitting in a chair with drool coming out of her mouth, because my mother is only 113 pounds. And these are, these are heavy-duty drugs, which got me to thinking about this. I wondered, were we talking about hospice, a person with a life-threatening illness, or were we actually talking about a program which should actually create a homicide in a person? Because if you sat down and you put these concoctions together and you knowingly gave this to a person that did not have a life-threatening illness, where is your responsibility in here? And what do we label that as? What do we call that? We know that in the United States, there has been a lot of talk about people uh, wanting to uh, thin out the population. We know that uh, Ron Emanuel's brother, Zeke Emanuel, actually said that uh, he implied that people over a certain age were no longer able to, uh, no longer able to contribute to society. They'd actually out, outworn their welcome and that, that they should, you know, do something to, Get along, move on, let the new people come up. So it's a very problematic scenario. It brings into question ethics. It brings into question money, because when I looked at the, uh, what they were going to do to my mother, we were looking at 21 people that stood to be gainfully employed by this hospice going through. As soon as it went through, 21 people were going to get on the payroll. 21 people that never met my mother. 21 people that didn't live near her. Some of them lived in Philadelphia. Some of them lived in Millville. But nobody lived close to where my mother was. And nobody knew my mother. And so it was very, very upsetting to me to see that my mother was being used basically as an income for other people at this time in her life, being completely taken advantage of, and that at the end, her calculated risk was she was to die. The schedule was you're to die in six months, whether you're actually dying or not. Now, this has a happy ending because 
when I got my mother out of the hospital that day and, and, you know, we got the fecal impaction removed, my father had tears in his eyes and he said to me, is there anything we can do for you? Because he was so thrilled because I want to tell you something. And I've talked about my parents on the program before my father (laughs) doesn't know he caught the girl still. He's 99 and he still thinks he didn't catch the girl, but he loves her so deeply. And if my mother died, he would die right, right after that. And that night, I had them both and hugged them because I knew that tonight I got to have another night with my parents. And I was so happy to not have them in that program anymore. But it took a lot of work to get them out of the program. And it took a lot of me wrangling, you know, with, with this fellow to let go. He had the bone in his mouth, and he wasn't going to let go. There was too much money at stake. You understand that this program provides a lot of money. Once the faucet gets turned on, lots of people make money. I think it's particularly, uh, it can be particularly abused in smaller towns where there's not as much uh, employment. Uh, and, and, and doctors and other people need to keep, keep, the, you know, keep the motor running. I think it's, it, it can be very, very abused. I also want to say that I do know people, not personally who've been in hospice, but I knew of people who told me they had family members who were in hospice. And it was a very good thing. Their family had cancer. Uh, and they really did only have six months to live. And palliative care, which is what you get, you don't get life, you don't get life-giving care, but what you get is pain management. They felt that this was a very good choice for their, for their relatives. But I have to say that, you know, what are the chances that you're talking to a stranger? I hardly know my neighbor. What are the chances that you're talking to somebody and, and you have this story and they have the exact same story? And this is a pretty troubling story, which made me think, how often is this happening? How much does this happen? And I think that the questions we need to ask ourselves, you know, if you're thinking about this, you need to make sure that, one, you have a terminal illness. And, two, do you understand what hospice is? Are you ready? And what are the ethical questions for you around this? And I wanted to bring this out into public because I think that, unlike uh, death, is something that very few people want to talk about, although it's been on our radar a lot more lately with COVID, and particularly with this station. Many, many people who've called into the station have often talked about, you know, thinning out the population. Is this just another tool to thin out the population? And although we do have this question of how long should a person live or how long can people live, you know, people do live longer today, and and it is going to have an effect on the population. But do you want to be the person that, that, that says, Time's up for you. You're just, you've, you've, you've had your allotment of time and move it along. I don't know. It puts me in a very strange place. And I know that my parents are beloved to me. I will not be happy when they leave the planet. And I know that this is a time in their life that's very precious. And I don't want some people taking advantage of them just to make some money. And I think that it's just another system. I have said to you, Therese, this is another one of the systems in the United States that looks to me like it's very broken. Our healthcare system in general is really not a great one. But, boy, this to me hits a, an all-time low. So I guess I'm bringing it to you to inform you. It's, again, my personal story. Uh, if anybody has any questions, uh, I, I would love to hear them. And if anyone wants to contact me, you're welcome to go to my website, glengoodwin.com, and, and I'll get back to you. So I think that's pretty much my story, and I, I'll be happy to answer any questions or talk about it with any of the listeners. 
888-874-4888 is the number to call to talk with Gwen Goodwin, who is giving us a briefing on her experience and her parents' experience with hospice care. 888-874-4888. Why don't we take a little break while people decide what their questions are going to be and we come right back and answer them right after this. to lead stories on prn.fm our guest presenter today is gwen goodwin uh as you know we've been having lectures or presentations as we call them by people who listen to the program and have a body of information or expertise or experience that they feel they'd like to share and Gwen was one of those. Uh, she called me and told me about the story. I said, that would make a very good presentation. Why don't you think about that? And so here it is. For your consideration and for your information, and you can call at 888-874-4888. Gwen, so far, I would tell you your presentation has been riveting, and I'm sure you will get quite a response. We have Ralph on uh, from New York on the air. Hello, Ralph. Are you there? No. Ralph, are you on the air? Hello? Yes, you're on the air, Ralph. What is your question? Yes, I don't have a question, but uh, I haven't thought much about this since... You have to talk a little louder. You're very, very low. Yes, suddenly it got very low after it was open. Um, I don't have much experience with uh, hospice care. Um, other than my late wife uh, asked to be transitioned at home, and I, we were able to do that. And but the, I, I believe after listening to Gwen Goodwin's presentation, it occurred to me that the whole question of family. Why is it so low? I, I can barely hear you. Wow! <laughs> Suddenly, it just got. It went quiet. Um, I don't know how to change it. 
No, the engineer now. is trying to figure out how to bring up your volume, but it's very low and it's very hard to can hear. Can you hear me now? I can barely hear you. I've been can saying you that since you got on the air. Barely hear you. Come on. Oh, okay. there you go. Hello? Uh, yes, I can hear you a little bit now. Okay. What the what I was saying is that since Dr. Kevorkian had it on the front page of America, not much has been talked about it, but it would seem to me that the whole question of family and culture comes into play here. As we know, uh, it, even in the beginning in America, uh, in the American culture or the American social habits, uh, families stayed together, parents, grandparents. All right, well, you're not asking a question, so you have to move on. I'm sorry about that. You must have a question. That's the nature oh, of the program. Well, I'll just listen. Uh, presentation is made, and we want to uh, have things answered. Henry from Chicago, you're on the air. Hi, Utrecht. How's it going? Okay, Henry, how is it by you? What's your question uh, for Gwen? All right. Uh, uh, hi, Gwen, and thank you for that presentation. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, considering that I also have elderly parents as well uh, who do live on their own, how do we prevent, you know, them getting caught up uh, in, you know, in that particular system or scam that, that I would see because, you know, they've been, you know, they've been scammed a lot, you know, being elderly people. So I don't want that to happen. What are some preventative measures that you, that you think might help uh, from, from uh, having that happen? Thank you, Henry. Um, I think there's a lot that you can do proactively, but I think the first thing that you must do, you must talk to your, the other siblings in the family and make sure everybody's on the same page. That's very important because if one sibling has power of attorney and the other one does not, it's very hard to, to get beyond that. Now, one thing people also need to know is the only time power of attorney can be used when it comes to hospice is if the person is incapacitated. So if you have the person, if the person is legally incapacitated by the court, then a power of attorney may come in and deem that person into hospice, put them into hospice. But other than that, you can't put a person into hospice uh, unless the person knows. But as I said, in my, in my mother's case, uh, a relative just told the, uh, the nurse who got the papers signed, just don't tell her what she's signing. And you know what? My mom signed it. She thought it was just a visiting nurse. She had no idea what she was signing. So we're telling you that, first of all, understand the ailments that your mom and dad have. And that some, I would even look up their ailments. If somebody says they need hospice, look up the ailment and find out if it's covered under hospice. That's the first thing. Also, in, 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 your, in the state of uh, New Jersey where my mother was, there's actually a hotline. There's a hospice hotline set up by the state. And I was very lucky to call them on the phone and got a lot of information about what does qualify, what does not. And they almost fell over when I told them the drugs my mother was going to be put on. Because you can't put people that are that age, senior citizens, on, uh, on Haldor 
and, and especially mix it in with morphine, you will kill them. So I think for you, if, if you want to stay ahead of this, you need to be interactive in your parents' life. You need to make sure that the illnesses they have are definitely terminal illnesses. And you need to talk to the, your parents and find out what they really actually want. I know my mother did not want to be put into hospice. And you know what? You certain things you really understand at certain ages. And, you know, my mother understood what hospice meant. She knew what that meant. She might not have known anything else, but she knew what that meant. And she said, no, I want to live to see your father's 100th birthday. I want to be here on this planet, and I want to celebrate that with him. So you need to be proactive on your side. You need to speak to your other siblings about it and make sure that people are on the same page. And the next thing is make sure that what they have is actually an illness that does deem them uh, uh, ready to be in hospice. And I would say to you, you know, if somebody has a a, a terminal illness like cancer uh, or, you know, some other kind of terminal illness and and the pain is unbelievable and this is what they wish, that's fine. But understand something. Once you start taking those drugs, even if you want to stop the process, you're so zoned out, you're not going to be able to stop any process because you're not even going to open your eyes. The the drugs themselves are uh, debilitating. So make sure that that is really what your your parents want and and that you're doing the right thing by them. It's truly an insult to to do something like this to an elder who who raised you and took care of you and just put them in a system like this. And I also want to make people aware that this system was not put here to do babysitting for your mother and father. And it seemed to me that there's a very fuzzy gray area in the law that, that likes to look at this as daycare for grown-ups or for, for seniors, but it is not. And when you go to the hospice website, you will see it's very, very clear and concise. This is not something that you're going to use for your parents. So a couple times a week, a nurse comes in. It's not to be used like that. It's, not, it's against the law to be using it like that. It's fraud. But there are some lawyers like, that like to say, you know, it's good to have somebody come in and look on them. Listen, you can hire somebody else to look in on your parents. It's not going to finish them off. Okay. Thank you. Mohammed from New York, you're on the air. When from Manhattan, as we used to call her, but now she has the last name, Gwen Goodwin. <laughs> <laughs> we fight the good battles and win. <laughs> Mohammed, you're on the air. Oh, good afternoon. Hope all is well. Just want just want to make Thank a very you. brief comment that was very informative and very interesting. Thank you. Thank you very Thank you. much. Well, Gwen, that was for you. Thank you, everybody. That was for you. Eight 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 seven four four eight eight eight. Our guest is Gwen Goodwin. She is relating her experience, direct experience. Uh, via her parents in the matter of hospice care and what you need to know. So she's sharing quite a bit of information and preparing people uh, to anticipate that it is not going to be an easy process and you have to be on the ball. You have to know what is going on and you have to monitor closely what is happening with a loved one who might be in hospice care or who will soon be in hospice care. 
874-4888 is the number to call. When I want, oh, Ali, sorry, you're on the air. Ali. Um, hi, you three. Hi, Wen. And hello. Hello hi, to all your, uh, to the entire um, family, <laughs> your, all your listeners. Um, when, one thing that I have to say, you, your parents are gifted because they have you. And I have to say this really from the bottom of my heart. Um, can you hear me? Yes, thank you so much, Yeah, I almost think that I got caught off. But I just wanted to say, because um, my situation, two years ago, my my mother-in-law died. She she had eight kids, and my husband was the only one taking care of her. Um, She was put in hospice, and I just wanted to make sure that people are aware that they do give you that service at home if you have... Uh, 24 hours, they really, that's what we did. Um, the kids, they never really went to see her. Um, you know, we live right here in the city, and they live, most of them, in Long Island. And uh, and when he came, because you're talking about siblings and asking for their decision, they were very upset because we decided to have hospice in the apartment with the uh, uh, health care, with the home care, and they wanted to go to Calvary because it's, everything is about name. So I just wanted to say that um, it was kind of difficult. And you're right. When they inject these people and they give these old people medication, they don't even open their eyes. Something happened at NYU, um, and we really don't know at the end what they did. But my mother-in-law was never able to open her eyes or um, speak. For whatever reason, she never did. She only lasted about like nine days, but we oh had her God. really, really comfortable in her apartment. So it is important that people, if you have the people that they're very, very old, or if we got um, uh, a terminal ill is illness, it's important to have people that really, really love you and concerned about you to take care of you. That's what I, and I want to tell you, your parents are really gifted. Um, yeah. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you okay. so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Eight eight eight. I want to just make eight a comment seven, about four, that. Four, eight, eight, eight. Go ahead. I just wanted to say this too that I'm very uh, close to my mother, and my mother is a uh, very much a realist, and um, I think that 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 idea of just uh, for her personally, just zoning out until she's gone, uh, was really uh, not acceptable to her. She. She has. She likes life, and I think even as she's leaving life, she wants to be engaged. I mean, when we did think that this, uh, the, actually, the fecal impaction could have killed her because it wasn't being treated. But you know, I laid on the bed next to my mom, and I said to her that night, I said, "Mom, I said, don't die. I said, I'm going to fix this." And she looked at me, and she said, "Okay." And I just wanted her to hang on a little bit longer, and we got her over there, and we got her treated, but. She was engaged, even feeling so bad. She was still engaged in her, her life and her health and what she wanted to do. And I think that it's so important to respect that in people. And to, to, for somebody to take that away and say, we're going to make this decision for you. And, and, you know, can you imagine what it might feel like to be on a heroin trip and dying at the same time and how disorganized your, your thoughts would be? And, I mean, that to me in itself is frightening. Uh, so, you know, but again, everybody's got, um, 
everybody has a different preference. But I think the most important thing, again, is a person who's going to have this treatment is fully aware of what's going to happen. And then I think that they can make their own decisions. But in my case, as I said, my mother had no idea she was even put into this program. So how frightening would it have been if we put my poor mother on uh, Haldor or, or morphine and, and she started to have a, like a drug trip? That would have been terrifying for her. So just, just wanted to put that out there. Gwen, could you identify, let's say, four top things on, that should be on anybody's list when well, this issue of uh, 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 hospice comes up? What are the four top things, or what are the top things they must consider? Well, I think that I, I, I had this list, and I want to reiterate it. I want you to make sure that there is actually a terminal illness. Understand that there, there, this, this is like a, a faucet of money that turns on. And, you know, we don't live in a society where we're, we live in a capitalistic society. So there are many people that, you know, just because they have MD behind their name does not mean that they have integrity. So, you know, they'll get close enough to the line. As a matter of fact, it was my mother's own doctor, a different doctor that I like very much. She has a great deal of integrity. And this is a person who doesn't uh, do extra billing or padding or anything. But he knows about the system. And he told me, he said, it's a very abused system. And he said, you know, when, when a doctor's looking at the codes for what they can get the most money for, this is a pretty good code. And, he, and so he warned me, you have to be very, very careful of the person who's treating you and you actually have terminal illness. Make sure that you know that that's what you have. And then you want to make sure that you understand the process itself. You need to know, as, as the person who's going to have this process done to you, what's going to happen. They're going to take away your life-saving medicine. So in my mother's case, she has AFib. She needs to take medicine to keep her heart regulated. Okay, every day she takes some medicine for that. What would happen when my mother would go off that? Well, they would not be stepping in to give her anything for her AFib. They would just give her more palliative drugs. That means drugs to take away pain. But they wouldn't treat her for that AFib. So she, needed, she would have to understand that you are going to have an AFib attack of some type, and you maybe could live through it or maybe not, but we will not be giving you anything to stop the AFib attack. So you need to understand that. And I think uh, here, here's another question, and we can come back to it, uh, to what you're saying. But Mary from New York is on the air. Yes. Mary, what's your question? Hello, Mary? Yes. Let me shut this off then. So low. You need to turn off your radio and tell us what's your question. Wanted to say we had a very positive experience. Yes, hello. Yes, hear her, you three, at all. Okay, we move on. Marcus from Wisconsin, you're on the air. Uh, good afternoon, esteemed ladies. Uh, Ms. Goodwin, good thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, excellent. And I can't help but think that 
you know, just using a little basic pattern recognition, uh, that this river you describe has many, many tributaries. Um, probably most of us have also had the similar experience of maybe uh, an elderly uh, relative or neighbor who has had cancer, um, had surgery or some sort of treatment, got better, was then given chemotherapy and radiation and immediately took a turn for the worse and is put in hospice. So I, I, uh, it's also true of people with liver disease on and on. So I, I think you're very, uh, uh, very right to raise this issue and hopefully somebody uh, with your talent and ability and determination will investigate this more thoroughly because no one else is. You're, I think your point about capitalism is absolutely right. This, it, 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 it's not exactly, in your opinion, do you think this is sort of a sinister undertaking or is it more just a product of a capitalist system that demands profit and uh, the human considerations are not even secondary. Well, I, th I actually think that, I think that this is, um, uh, I don't think it's as sinister as I think it is something that's done on a regular basis. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a very quiet way of just getting rid of the problem. And uh, we're calling, we, we give it a nice name, we call it hospice, and we say we're doing the right thing. It's almost like putting down your dog, you know? I mean, that's how I felt. You're putting down the dog, the family dog. And we're not going to call it anything serious. We're not going to call it homicide because what the heck? A doctor said to do it, and they gave you some nice drugs. But when you look at the bare nuts and bolts of this, what is this if it's not a homicide when a doctor knows what drugs do. They absolutely know what the outcome's going to be. And they absolutely know that the, that the client doesn't fit the criteria. Then what is it? Because to me, there was a lot of malice going on here. And, and when I tried, as I said, to take the, do the bone out of the dog's mouth, they gave me a very hard time. And they weren't going to drop that bone until I said two words, and that was malpractice. And then it stopped. It stopped that minute. But I have to tell you, the doctors were very upset. The relative that wanted this to happen went to the court and actually uh, took it in front of the judge and said they wanted to resume this hospice. And they wanted an injunction to keep me away from the so-called help that my parents had. Well, in this case, the judge recognized the problem here. And he said that my mother and father could not be put into hospice anymore unless they went before him personally and said that they wanted to be in hospice. That's what he recognized. Now, the sad part for me is that because I am not the power of attorney, there is now an injunction against me. Uh, the judge in New Jersey put an injunction against me uh, saying that I am not allowed to go inside, inside of my parents' house anymore, uh, that my parents uh, can only see them for two hours, and I have to give 48 hours' notice to my relative's lawyer before I go. And this is very, very heartbreaking to me. It's really, really sad. But remember that those two letters, MD, mean something. And so if they say it, then everyone assumes, well, that must be the way. Except for that I listen to the Gary Null Show, and I think I'm a very informed client here. And I think that what I've learned the most 
when I've listened to Gary for so many years is that I have to be proactive in my own health, that I have to step up to the plate and I have to ask important questions and that I should not be intimidated by somebody who has an MD behind their name. I am not a doctor. I don't claim to be one, but I do have a brain in my head. And when something's not making sense and something's going to be as critical as losing a loved one, then I think I have the moral obligation. This is a moral obligation to step up to the plate and and push your parent out of the way of an oncoming car. That's what I think that I have to do. So I've taken a lot of steps to safeguard my mom. She's alive today. She's very happy. And she's still getting her homemade soup that I bring her, and my dad's still getting his coffee cake that I make for him. I love my parents very much. And I, 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 my job, as I said to the judges, my job in this world right now is to take care of my parents. And no one, I hate to tell you, will ever take as good of care as your parents, as you yourself, which, again, brings us to the next you know, problem in America. What do you do when people get old? Well, I don't know. We've had a lot of, we've had a lot of different things to try to handle this. Uh, you know, we do nursing homes in the 1970s. We saw that a lot of that was a fiasco. Now we do assisted living, and some of that works. But then there's people like mom and dad that won't leave their home. They, they don't want to leave their home. They want to live there, and they want to die there. So then it's up to the family. And there's always, you know, there's always people in the family that, uh, that want more, that push others out of the way, and that's something else you have to deal with. But at this point, I just wanted to make sure that other people got this story because, you know, I'm 60 now, and I don't want to have somebody coming in and signing me up for this program. Thank you very much. I'll take my, I'll take my, you know, my nuts and bolts, and it'll be uncomfortable. But, but I want to be lucid when I, when I die. I don't want to be floating around in some, you know, never, never land. But that's me. But I think that everyone, including me, has a right to, to have that kind of, whatever kind of treatment we want when we're leaving the planet. What we want, not what somebody else wants. Thank you, Marcus, for your question and your comment. Jackie from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Good afternoon to you and the Good family. Okay, Thank now you. this is uh, the question is I have a question and a statement. First of all, in New York. Well, let's get to the question. This is the the reason. This is the point. Do you think there should be some type of national health care law that provides for patient advocates for people that are being considered to go into hospice care? So this way, the patient advocate can be in the in between the hospice facility and the patient and the patient's family. There's a lot of good points that Gwen brought up about the whole thing about family, having different opinions, uh, the issue of the uh, uh, power of attorney. But in New York, if you have a health care proxy and people designate it to act on your behalf, then the health care proxy person can make those kind of determinations, but everybody should have that. Can I, can I interrupt a bit? Can I interrupt a bit? There is something on in your house, a radio, television. Could you please I'm out turn it off? I'm outside. I'm sorry. I'm just coming in from an appointment, so I'm outside. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, but there's a lot competing against you. <laughs> Yes, because I'm going in my into my uh, house. But the point is, I was trying to get through before the show ended. So my question is: Should there be a national 
law that requires all people that's going into hospice care to be assigned a patient advocate who would be a, a you know, a buffer between family, the patient, and the institution. Right. That was my question. Okay. I, I, thank you for the question. And I want to say that it sounds like a really good idea. But we do live in this capitalist society. And once somebody starts getting paid, then there's all kinds of things that go awry. And, and you know, one of the things in my own family that's, that's become such an issue here was that there, when you make somebody your proxy, there can also be a problem. You know, there's five children in our family. And, you know, one got out in front of the others and, and, and nabbed that power of attorney. My mother didn't, I don't didn't think she knew what she was signing. She clearly didn't understand what it meant. And, and that's it. And that's the, that's the ironclad agreement that everyone has to abide by. And it's really, really been a terrible thing to happen. It's basically destroyed our entire family. So, yes, I think but there should be some kind of a proxy. For that. First of all, I don't know what state Gwen is in. In New York, it's different for a power of attorney and a health care proxy are two different things in New York. Yes, yes. There's but two, I there, recognize in our... that there's always confusion in families among siblings. Yes. And so this is why it's important that people do this while the parents are, you know, fairly young and lucid and know what they want to have done. Right. I'm going right. through this in Pennsylvania with my own mother, even though I live in New York, and I went through this with my father who was in Texas. So I understand, and it's a very uh, hurtful, emotionally challenging kind of thing. But it has to be done, if it can be done. Yeah. Well, I think in, in this case that uh, the sanity that started to – the only sane voice I heard about this, uh, frankly, was the, the, the uh, people from the state that, that uh, absolutely knew what was supposed to happen with hospice. And so, you know, that was the, – so it could be that if we put a national program together that could put somebody in like a guardian – that would that would guarantee right. they were 100 percent right. right. neutral in this case. I think that would be a very good idea. And I think that you know we cut back a lot. Uh, well, we were supposed to put some money towards uh, towards end of life care recently uh, in the build it back better uh, thing, and that didn't happen. And um, I really think it's important uh, that we we do take we we do put more effort, more money. Um, more safeguards in place for people because you know we all we all going to die at some time and and i think that i think we should have it you know it shouldn't be a horrible uh experience uh, like this it shouldn't be uh, somebody okay, trying to get over on again. This, what you said about the meditation is so important because i like you i stayed in the hospital with my mother and I asked them, what are you giving my mother? Because they came in with this eyedropper, and they were giving her medication. They said, ask her to open her mouth. So I said, well, what is that? Oh, well, this is morphine. I said, well, why are you giving my mother morphine if she's not in pain? So I agree with you, because they, they want to get people in a state of submissiveness as exactly. opposed to uh, being exactly. fully alert. Right, and my so, mom is not schizophrenic, I guarantee you. By individual cases, some people do lose the morphine if they're in tremendous pain, and other people may not. But there has to right. be somebody there that's watching what's going on. 
So I, like you, I stayed in the room with my mother, you know, until she transitioned. But there are a lot of things that need to happen in this area that's not happening now. Right. Thank you. Thank you, you. Jackie, for your question. Um, Let's wrap up now, Gwen, and tell us what is the what is the point of all this that you're making? Well, I think the point of me bringing this story to you and your audience was something that was so that was so. out of my realm in my life. I had really not ever thought about this before. And I realized how ignorant I was and that how dangerous that, that ignorance was, could cause, cause me a lot of heartbreak in my life. And I had to get up to speed very quickly. And um, I, you know, it's not the first time, you know, when my husband died, something similar happened to me with, with the funeral. And I learned that in the state of New York, funerals are highly regulated. But if you don't call then they can't help you. And the hospice uh, organizations are also regulated. But um, as the last caller said, she didn't know what was going into her mother's mouth, and she didn't have a list of the drugs in front of her. And what was stunning for me was when I opened up the list and I saw seven, seven prescriptions, three per prescription, and I realized that these would totally annihilate my mother. They would either kill her or they would put her out. They would zombify her to the point where she couldn't, you couldn't even talk to her. And, you know, if I did not know my mother was in hospice, I probably would have gone down and thought my mother had a stroke. But she, that wouldn't have been the case. She just would have been so drugged up. So I wanted to bring this to the attention of the audience because there's a lot of people that are, are from the, the baby boomers, and we're going into this point in our life, and I want to tell you something. That's not the way I want to go for me right now. I know that. And I want to make sure that I'm aware of what's going on. And I just think this is a very unpleasant subject that many people would not want to look at. I don't blame you. I didn't want to look at it either. But that doesn't diminish its importance. It's important that you know what you want to do at the end of your life. It's extremely important that you, you know who you want to have around you. And I want to advise people that, you know, Money does not fix anything at the end. What, what, what helps and fixes are hands-on, people that have skin in the game, people that really love you. I know that I took care of my parents for a whole year, uh, and I know that my, my job with them was to just Uh-oh. be with them and give them pleasure. So I thank you for thank letting you me bring it up today. Thank you very much for your presentation today. Bye-bye.